Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Quadcast. My name is John McAlevey. And while this podcast is mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, it is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. The aim of this venture is to provide you, the listener, with a 30 to 45-minute session of OT and PT for the soul. And quite frankly, in today's world, who couldn't use a little of that? I mentioned that this is a very special edition, and that is because today is August 19, 2022, exactly 30 years to the day that my life changed forever following my devastating spinal cord injury. So today, I am celebrating my 30th, or my Pearl anniversary, from which I'm told, and as a way of commemorating this big milestone, I will be highlighting the three most consequential people in my life, me, myself, and I. (laughs) Yes, I am going to answer some of the questions that I usually pose to my guests. I'm not quite sure which ones yet, but I promise it won't be all of them because I don't want to put anybody to sleep. But before we get to that, how about we have some fun with some numbers, facts, and useless trivia with the backdrop of the numbers 30, August 19, and 1992 as the themes. Did you know that 30 years is also 10,957.27 days and 1,565.33 weeks? It's also 15,778,476 minutes and 946,708,560 seconds. But who's counting anyway? The amazing thing is that it probably took less than five seconds for my accident to happen. Since I am a sports guy, after all, a quick Google search of the best athletes to wear the number 30 finds such luminaries as Steph Curry, Nolan Ryan, Ken Griffey Jr. and Sr., running back Terrell Owens, and goalie Martin Brodeur, just to name a few. And to give you a perspective as to how long that is, the following celebrities are turning 30 this year. Selena Gomez. Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love's daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, Demi Lovato, Nick Jonas, Cardi B and Odell Beckham Jr., not to mention Miley Cyrus. Full confession, folks, I don't know who half of these people even are. And speaking of birthdays, these folks have August 19 as the day that they blow out the candles each year. Matthew Perry, former President Bill Clinton, John Stamos, and actress Kira Sedgwick, just to name a few. How about we take a trip back to the year 1992 now to see some of its highlights. In sports, the Toronto Blue Jays were your World Series champions, having defeated the Atlanta Braves in six games. In football, Mark Rippon, quarterback of the Washington Redskins, led his team past the Buffalo Bills 37-24 in the Super Bowl. This would be the second consecutive Super Bowl dropped by the Bills. They were not done, however, losing in the big game, as they would end up losing in 1993 and 94 as well. The Pittsburgh Penguins swept the Chicago Blackhawks to host the Stanley Cup, and Fred Couples was your Masters champion. The top five television shows that year were 60 Minutes, Roseanne, Home Improvement, Murphy Brown, and Murder, She Wrote. 
The number one song in America that year was End of the Road by Boys to Men, and the number one movie was Unforgiven. Interestingly enough, both a gallon of gas and a gallon of milk cost just $1.13. Perhaps most amazing is that we somehow existed without cell phones. How was that possible? Instead, the drug of choice to communicate back then was a pager. Google it, kids, if you have no idea what that is. Okay, let's take a brief time out for a message from the good folks at Canine Companions. But when we get back, it's Q&A time for Johnny Mac. And that, my friends, is next. This is my new best friend, Esther. She might look like any normal, playful puppy, but Esther's being raised to become a Canine Companions for Independence Assistance Dog for a person with a disability. To get there, she needs lots of loving care and attention plenty of exercise, and good eating habits so that she can live a long and healthy life for her future family. And she needs to spend tons of time socializing, learning basic commands like sit and stay, and taken to fun places with lots of distractions so that she can learn to cope in every situation. All of this will prepare Esther for more professional training to become a real assistance dog and a life helping a person with a disability to live more independently. Are you ready to open your heart and home for 18 months to a puppy like Esther? To find out more about becoming a canine companion for Independence Puppy Raiser or about other volunteer opportunities, visit cci.org or call 1-800-572-BARK. Raise a puppy, change a life. You can make a world of difference in the life of a person with a disability. Remember, you can find the show at the following podcast hosts. Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. That's eight places, or as I like to say, as many listeners as I have on a weekly basis. Da-dun-dunch. Just kidding. We have 10 or 12, I think. <laughs> okay, as you frequent flyers here on the Quadcast know, the first question that I always ask of my guests is, where did you grow up? And what was your childhood like? I grew up on the mean streets of Short Hills, New Jersey. And I would say that my childhood was great. I had the best parents anyone could ever ask for and a sister who was the best also. Sports were my thing. From the earliest memory I have, I was on a field. And if people were to ask me, what is your favorite sport? I would probably say, Tell me what time of year it is, and then I could tell you what my favorite sport was because one season rolled into the next, and it was football, then it morphed into basketball, and then we went into baseball. And um, I was just always playing a sport, so my parents knew where I was. I wasn't getting into trouble because I was on a field or on a court um, or what have you. I went to Milburn High School and had four of the greatest years of my life. I made lifelong friends, many of whom are still in my foxhole today. I can still, um, you know, lean on them for anything that I need. Uh, my best buds who have uh, been with me through thick and thin, and um, I don't know where I'd be without them. From Milburn High School, I went on to uh, graduate from Providence College in Rhode Island. Again, four great uh, great years, uh, terrific friends that, uh, that I made and I'm still in touch with. And I am as proud as a peacock 
um, to know that my nephew, Charlie, will be a freshman at PC this year. He's leaving in about a week or so. And I am thrilled, as many of you know, I don't have any children of my own, but the fact that I will have my nephew follow in my footsteps is a source of pride for me, and I couldn't be happier. I look forward to getting back up there for a couple of hoop games. Hopefully, the Friars will be good again this year. And just knowing that Charlie will be behind the basket cheering on the Friars makes my heart soar. Okay, next question. As you start to reach middle school and high school, what are you starting to think about doing with the rest of your life? Truth be told, I had no idea. I certainly wish that my guidance counselor back in the in the day would have posed those questions to me, like, hey, John, what do you what do you really think you want to do with yourself? And as I mentioned earlier, sports always played such a big role in my life. And I knew early on that a career playing them was not in the cards. I wish that they had told me about, you know, a sports major in school as far as like journalism and communications. I never really knew that that sort of thing existed um, because that would have been the route that that I would have gone. Um, but luckily for me, I did an internship when I was in school. It started my sophomore year. I worked at WPRI-TV, which is the ABC TV affiliate in Providence, Rhode Island. And I got the most hands-on, amazing um, work done. And and I learned from uh, my mentor was a gentleman named John Rook, who was the sports director at the time. And he is been the voice of the Friars basketball team for the last, got to be 34, 35 years now. And he took a 19-year-old kid under his wing and really taught me the ropes from how to log live events to edit highlights, which was not easy. Uh, He gave me the opportunity to go to Red Sox games, Patriots games, of course, Providence games, Connecticut basketball games, and get into the locker room with a microphone and to ask questions and uh, and to just see what a professional in the sports journalism field was like and how they acted and how they went about their business. And it was, you know, better than maybe being a communications major because I really had, you know, that that experience that set me apart from maybe some of the folks who just had, um, you know, just... what they did in the classroom. So that set me apart and it, it sent me on my way um, when I graduated from school to work for uh, a company called sports news network. I graduated on a a Thursday, I think. And then uh, the following Tuesday or Wednesday, I started my career in sports um, communications, journalism. It, uh, it was in Arlington, Virginia. And I was working, my hours were four in the afternoon to two o'clock in the morning, um, or pretty much whenever the games were finished up. Again, my chores were, I logged games. I wrote uh, scripts for the on-air talent to read um, from the uh, highlights that I edited. I used to love editing and anything I could do with, with putting music underneath sports pieces was something that I really enjoyed doing. Um, but that was what I was doing. I, I was down, as I said, in Arlington, Virginia. I lived in College Park, Maryland with my high school friend, Sal Raffanello, 
who was working at NASA for the summer. And I would drive the 45 minutes each day back and forth. And it was awesome. I mean, I was a young kid and I was working in the field that I wanted. Um, what more could I have asked for? That was 1990-ish, right after I had graduated. The company then, luckily for me, moved back to New Jersey and I was able to move home, save a couple of bucks. And within six months of the company moving back to New Jersey, they went bankrupt. So I was out of luck. There I was, I had my dream job, and now I was unsure of what I was going to do. Um, so I was able to find some hours working as a sales representative for Nabisco. I would go around to all the local supermarkets and, um, you know, stock the shelves. Basically, I was a glorified stock boy with all of Nabisco's products. And the understanding that I had with my boss there was that if I could get an interview um, lined up for something in the sports world, that I could get out for the day and do that. And so driving to one of those supermarkets one day, I heard a commercial on the radio for something called Sports Careers. And it was this amazing job fair. And they brought in folks from all walks of the sports world, whether it was from Major League Baseball, the NFL, Nike, Reebok, Adidas, um, anything you could think of that had to do with sports. And they brought them all under one tent. And it was um, probably about three or 400 entities. So the one that they were having that I heard the commercial for was out in San Diego, California. Now, I had never been there before, and it was always a place that I wanted to go. So I spoke with my parents. I crimped up enough money, saved up enough money for uh, my flight, and I went out to San Diego. Lo and behold, there were 600 people there. And the real reason why I wanted to go, not only was it to lounge on the beaches of San Diego, but ESPN was going to be there. And their head of human resources, a gentleman named Al Jaffe, who has hired anybody who was anybody at ESPN starting in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And so that was the goal. I wanted to get in front of him and see if I could, um, you know, work my Johnny Mac charm. So what they did is uh, ESPN had put up that they were going to interview of the 600 people that were there. They had 598 resumes. And the next day they posted three names for interviews. And one of them was John Joseph McAlevey. Wow. I couldn't believe it. I remember running back to my room and calling my parents, letting them know that here was my shot. And um, the following day I went in. And it was probably about an hour or an hour and a half, the interview. And it was grueling, to say the least. I mean, I got grilled on everything from who were the backup quarterbacks in the AFC Central to tell me who all of the closers are in the American League West to questions about the NHL, which is one sport that I really do not follow. Um, I had to tell him who won the Vezina Trophy and all sorts of things like that. Then we delved into college sports um, and what have you. And again, I said it was probably about an hour or an hour and a half. And I thought for the most part, I knocked it out of the park. Um, I was my congenial self. 
Uh, Mr. Jaffe was a nice man, and we had uh, we had good conversation um, in and around uh, when the questions were. So that was that was June of of 1992, and then um, lo and behold, my world would change in August of 92 when uh, when I had my fall, and that leads me into my next question. Tell us about the day that changed your life. What do you remember before, during, and after your accident? Let's just say that the day was August 19, as I've chronicled here earlier, and it was like any other day that I can remember. I went to work. I came back home. I went out for a run that night. I probably ran about three or four miles through the center of Milburn. And then just came back, had dinner, and went to sleep. I do remember waking up in the middle of the night, however, and not feeling well. Just sort of out of sorts. And thinking to myself, you know, I should probably go and get my parents. Maybe I should uh, go up to the emergency room and see what's going on here. I forgot to mention that at the time I was living in the basement of my house. And so... I remember getting out of bed and beginning to walk over to the stairs to go up. And I remember feeling ill and getting close to the floor, thinking maybe I was going to pass out. I don't remember what happened next, but I guess I came to. And I remember that there was some blood that was dripping in front of my eye. I must have hit my head on the floor um, before I got to the basement steps and from there, I don't recall walking up the stairs, but there were drop, drips of blood that made it all the way to the top. And then, unfortunately, my weight shifted backwards. Had it gone the other way, I would have pushed the door open and, and fallen on the landing at the top of the stairs. But my body shifted the other way, and I had fallen all the way back down the steps. Again, I don't remember any of this, but I come to at the bottom of my stairs, and my face is again in the rug. My legs were halfway up the stairs. And all I felt at that point was nothingness. I was just completely numb. But I'm awake and aware of what's going on. I know that something awful has happened to me. At that point, I started to hear my father come down the stairs. I guess the the fall down the wooden steps was was rather loud. Um, and I can remember mustering enough air in my lungs because my injury, uh, as I would learn shortly, was very high on my spinal cord. So it, my lungs were affected. I just remember whispering to him, you know, don't move me. Don't touch me. Because, you know, you hear that moving people who have had something can do a lot more damage. Um, and then from there, what I... Uh, what I remember is hearing the the sirens of the Milburn Short Hills First Aid Squad, um, and I remember them coming down the stairs and being so cautious um, and loading me onto what I affectionately refer to as the surfboard, um, um, and then from there loading me on and uh, and getting me up to Overlook Hospital where I would spend the next oh two and a half, three months. Um, and I had surgery there and, you know, a whole new life was beginning. And it was something that, you know, I wasn't sure I was ready for. I don't know if anybody is ever ready for something like that, but it was here 
and it was happening and I was either going to get on board with it or it was going to swallow me whole. Okay, let's see what the next question is. What were you told by the doctors initially and how did this sink in with you mentally? Well, I don't think the doctors actually told me everything right off the bat. In fact, they knew that I was going to have to have surgery, but they didn't spring that on me until at least two and a half, three weeks into my stay. Um, so, I, you know, I there was a part of me that just sort of thought that I had a stinger and that I was going to um, bounce back from this and that it wasn't going to be a lifelong thing. But um, as the days started to one past into the next, I, you know, got the message that this was not going to be something that was um, easily overcome. Um, mentally, you know, as a 24-year-old who had everything out in front of him, was in great shape, had great friends, and ha had, you know, a life in sports television as the goal and, and was pretty much right there for the taking, it was really, you know, a mind, you know what, I had to, I had to put, you know, two and two together again, and it was coming up to as five or six. Um, and so I really didn't know where I was. Things were upside down. Uh, I was lucky enough to have friends that would come by and, um, and to help me sort of stay in the here and now Two that I mention all the time, the great Robert Galatelli, who was my day guy, he would come up and spend uh, the days with me. And also the great Jamie Paget, who was my night guy. As a lawyer, he would work a full day and then he would come and spend his uh, evenings with with me and, and with the family. We would have dinner and we would just try to laugh and, and try to be, you know, like things used to be. We would watch television. We would watch stupid shows to try and make us laugh. I remember watching, um, you know, Magnum PI was a favorite. We watched those talk shows. I think Jenny Jones was the, was the show that was on back then. That was just mindlessness. And so it was basically, they tried to, uh, take the mental aspect out of it. You know, physically, obviously at that point, I really couldn't wiggle my toes or move, uh, move my arms and hands and fingers. And so the goal was to try and take my mind off of that at least as much as possible. Next question, Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. Had you ever heard of the place before being admitted? Well, yes, not only had I heard of it, but I had driven past it in team buses probably about a million times over the years. When we would go to play uh, teams like West Orange and Verona, we would have to pass there. And I always knew it was there. I would really not even look up the hill because there's a huge hill for those of you who have not been to or passed um, the facility. There's a large hill with a big driveway that goes straight up. And I can't remember actually looking up there. And I don't really even remember um, knowing what went on there or who was there. And so um, when I did get there and, and find out what was going on, um, it was amazing. It's something that you never want to have to go there, but if you live close enough and you need to be there because you've had a catastrophic injury, it is a place that you want to go because the help there 
and the folks that work there, um, they do amazing things, not only for you physically, but mentally. And, uh, and that's where I started my new world. Um, the next question is, how did you attack OT and PT? What was your mindset? And as I've mentioned earlier, I was always an athlete and I wanted to be as good as I possibly could be. And so I got right to it in therapy. I was petrified because at that point I was still in a wheelchair. I wasn't, I wasn't sure whether I'd be able to walk again. Um, I had found out after my surgeries and whatnot that I was a central cord syndrome patient. I didn't know anything about spinal cords before I had my accident, but they explained to me that central cord syndrome means that I would probably walk again, but that I would have little to no use of my arms, hands, and fingers. The fine motor skills um, in my world were gone because my spinal cord was so severely bruised. And I have to tell you, they were pretty right on the money. Um, within, I guess, the first two weeks or so of therapy, I was up and out of my chair and I was walking um, with a walker at first and then solo. I didn't, I didn't use anything. Um, but it wasn't easy. It was hard trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, as I like to say. But um, I was able to get that going. And so um, I wanted to continue that to get stronger as the days and weeks went by, um, which leads me into my next question. What did you foresee in the future? Um, and as I told you all, the goal was ESPN. And wouldn't you know, the first week that I was admitted into Kessler, they called me from Bristol, Connecticut and told me that you got the job. And isn't that great? The one goal that I had, um, and it came to fruition. Unfortunately, at that point, I could barely wiggle my toes and could really not do anything with my arms and hands and fingers, as I've said. So my priorities had changed. And so that career was sort of put on the back burner. Um, you know, I, I wasn't in the right mind to, to move. I didn't know how that was going to work. I would have needed help. Um, and so, as I said, my priorities changed. I wanted to just get, you know, back on my feet again, get home and see what life was like as a as a disabled 24-year-old. And so I really wasn't sure what the future held for me. And I have to say for, for a couple of years, uh, I continued with outpatient therapy and I really didn't, you know, think of, of working a full-time job because I wasn't sure that I could do it physically and or mentally. Um, I tried a few different things. I did an internship with the New Jersey Nets for about I guess about a year I did that. And wouldn't you know, they gave me the job of keeping track of their scrapbook, which was here, give the kid that has no use of his hands uh, a pair of scissors and have him cut articles out of the local papers um, to keep in a scrapbook. So that was my chore. Um, you know, you can't make these things up. It's like having the blind man work as the air traffic controller. I kind of got the feeling that they really didn't know what to give me to do. Um, and they didn't really know what to make of me. Um, 
altogether. I mean, spinal cord injuries, most people think of someone in a wheelchair. But as I like to say, no two injuries are the same. And I had a spinal cord injury rather high on my cord, but I'm able to walk around. And again, people sometimes would look at me and have no idea what my deal is. Um, And I think that that was sort of what was going on with the Nets. Um, and then also with some other places that I tried to to get going um, work-wise, I just don't know if people really knew what my story was and or took me seriously at that point. And it was tough. You know, it was, I'm not someone that's going to go out and blow my own horn, but um, I knew that there were some things that I probably could have done, but didn't really speak up for myself. Um just because of what the situation was and I didn't want to draw attention to, to my deal. Um, and it sort of set me back a ways, I would think. Um, but time moves on and luckily years down the road, I have now found something that is fulfilling for me and hopefully for those that I'm helping. And that leads me to the next question. What are you doing now? And I am the peer coordinator at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. I work with Jane Mitchell as my boss and Janine Valenti. Uh, We all share an office about the size of a shoebox, all kidding aside. But what we do is, what I do is I knock on the doors of the newly injured folks that are on the wing at Kessler and see if they're interested in a program in which I can match them up with someone who has a similar injury or close to that to see if they want to have a conversation. Because it's one thing to listen to your doctor or your therapist or your family member, you know, able-bodied folks. But it's another thing to, to hear, you know, stories and, you know, trials and tribulations from someone who is quote unquote, walking the walk and talking the talk or rolling the walk and rolling the talk. Um, And so if they're interested, what we do is we set up at this point now, it is all done virtually because of COVID, but we let them get together and talk because for someone who's newly injured, they might think that there's not a future in front of them, but the mentors that we set them up with have been living in the community with their disability for a number of years, and they have great stories to tell about how they are living a fulfilling life again, how they're traveling, how they're working, how they're making a difference. And, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. You're going to hear me say that again later on. But, you know, because of the situation that they're in, they're not going to be able to do things the way they used to do them. But somebody who has a similar injury can let the newly injured folks know that, hey, listen, it might not be the way you used to do it, but there is still a way to do it. And so that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it's working out great. I I hope that I and we are making a difference because, you know, they a lot of these people have that same look on their face. Their their family members do as well. And that's, you know, hey, can somebody give me the license plate on the truck that just destroyed my life that I was living? Um, but as soon as they can 
um, get a sense that it's not the end of the world, then that works out for the better in the long run. It's not going to be the same, and it may not be um, the greatest thing in the world, but it's not the end of the world. Um, and that is what we try to convey. And so we do that, and I have a, a great time doing that. Um, and also, I'm recording this podcast, which I put together and I record in my home studio slash corner of my bedroom. It started out as a way to pass the time during COVID and also for me to delve back into my communications and journalism background. Truth be told, I like to hear myself talk, I guess. Oh, I don't know. But it's maybe my way of not having that ESPN gig and being on the air and commentating on games and things like that. But it it gives me the opportunity to do that here with this microphone in front of me and just get some things off my chest. And so I'm now 42 episodes in, I believe. This will be 43. And it is a labor of love. My only concern is that I can't find enough guests to join me. If any of you out there know of any folks that... Um, deserve highlighting, please let me know. I would be more than happy to speak with them to bring their uplifting story um, to our ears because we need to hear stories that are good, especially in today's world. And that brings me to the final question I always ask of my guests. And that is, if I could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able-bodied once again, what is the first thing that you would do? And for years, my pat answer would be, I would get my sneakers on and whatever music source I could get in my ears, and I would head out on the road and go for a run. And I would want to feel and and taste the, the sweat as it rolled down my face, that salty sweat roll into my lips and just get a good workout in because I so miss that. I know that many of us really miss that. But, you know... Over the last couple of years, which have been rough on the kid, the last two or three years have been really tough. Um, it's going to sound crude, but my answer at this point would be I would like to go into my bathroom, stand in front of the toilet and be able to empty my bladder. It sounds crazy, but it really is the case. It's been it's been tough for me these last couple of years in that respect. Also, I think anything fine motor wise, as far as um, doing buttons and zippers and pants, because now that I'm working, you know, it's really hard. People just take it for granted. But when I go in uh, to use the facilities, I think it takes longer for me to get a shirt tucked back in, um, to get my zipper done and my belt up. It takes forever to do that. And it's taxing. And it's something that most people will never have to deal with in their life, but it's something that as a central cord syndrome person, I do, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody because it's tough. So those are probably some of the things that, uh, that I would say now. And we now have arrived at the portion of my podcasts where I thank my guest and preview my next episode. Today will be a little bit different. First off, I'd like to apologize for the rambling stream of consciousness interview that you just heard. I assure you it's not easy to query yourself, especially about topics that evoke so many different memories, most of which are painful and hard to revisit. 
I hope you'll indulge me here, as I now will try and encapsulate 30 years' worth of great people who have helped me immeasurably and been in my corner every step of the way. And I'm sorry to those whose names escape me. To the Milburn Short Hills First Aid Squad that retrieved me and transported me to the emergency room following my fall that fateful morning. To Dr. Alan Gardner, who fused my spine a few weeks later. Thank goodness whatever he did has been able to withstand numerous bangs, bumps, and falls over the years. To Christian, Kim, and Lelise, and all of the great nurses at Overlook Hospital who handled me like a Fabergé egg those many months. From there, we were off to Kessler Institute to put Humpty Dumpty back together again in rehab. I met the great Dr. Stephen Kirschblum on that first day, and he is still working on my behalf today. He is my doctor, and more importantly, my friend. It was there that I initially worked with the great therapists, Miss Dawn Texas, Hilary Shackelford, Karen Cameron, Christy Martin, Heather Stark, and many, many more. You took a scared 24-year-old boy and showed him he could still kick some tail in his life and that there was more than one way to skin a cat in this world. Over the years, I have been back in for tune-ups and outpatient therapy and have had the pleasure of working with folks like Gabby Stiefbold, Cindy Granger, Paulie Salimo, Liz Caputo, Karen Baig, and Mari Ferry. And now, after getting badly deconditioned due to the COVID lockdowns, I'm hopefully back on the road to recover again because of the great work done by Marissa Rustano, Alyssa Atanasio, who will soon now be Natalie, Maddie Irwin, Jakeem Johnson, Pranali Shah, and Dave O'Brien. There is one person whom I must truly single out here because I not only met her back in 92 in my first iteration at Kessler, but have worked with her as an inpatient in the pool. Yes, there was a pool, kids, and in outpatient therapy throughout my three decades of therapy. And that is the world famous Maureen Pfeiffer. She is truly the engine that runs the gym and the straw that stirs the drink. Any cliche you want to come up with certainly fits the bill. Over the years, Maureen has heard me complain about a million things. She's heard me brag about my successful basketball teams and talk about applying for a service dog and much, much more. I think I speak for all of my fellow patients here, Miss Maureen, when I say you are the best, my friend. To my amazing family, my late father who never let me have a bad day and was my rock and best friend, my mom who has been there every step of the way, my sister Susan who has never wavered in her support for me and her family, my niece Megan, nephew Charlie, and brother-in-law Chaz. They continue to help me in any way, shape, or form they can. And for dear friends, the aforementioned Robert Galatelli and Jamie Paget, but Mr. Dennis Milton, Ron Edergino, Sal Raffanello, Jim White, Nick Biazzi, and many, many more. I offer you all two of the most consequential words in the English language, which are so wonderfully underscored in this song by the great Natalie Merchant, which are, thank you. Until next time, on behalf of Yoke and the Wonder Dog and Chris Parapesco from Harbor Picture Company, I am John McAlevey, and I appreciate your time. 
Give it. 